Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... The Astonishing Story of Yuri Gagarin with Stephen Walker and his new book, Beyond. Stephen Walker was born in London. He has a BA in History from Oxford and an MA in the History of Science from Harvard. His previous book, Shockwave, Countdown to Hiroshima, was a New York Times bestseller. He's also an award-winning documentary director. His films have won an Emmy, a BAFTA and the Rose Door, Europe's most prestigious documentary award. And today we're going to be talking about Stephen's latest book, which is Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. Stephen, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks very much for having me. The first thing we should talk about is why now for this book? Obviously books take a long while to actually write, but why is the book out right now? Well, I mean, the obvious, the obvious truth is, is it's out because we've just hit the 60th, this is the big year, the 60th anniversary of the first human or humans in space. Yuri Gagarin, the first human to go into space, went there in April 1961, which is just over 60 years ago. And then subsequent to that, the Americans, who just essentially lost the race with the Russians or the Soviets to put the first human in space, got their astronaut, Alan Shepard, into space in May 1961. So you're talking about an anniversary, and publishers love anniversaries because uh, they can do things with anniversaries, which is great. And so that's sort of part of it. But actually, I think it's more than that for me because um, an anniversary is, is one thing and it's a sort of a hook, but it's not enough for me to do a book like this and to put a book like this out at this time. The key thing is that we are living in very exciting times as far as space is concerned. There's just tremendous kind of impetus and adventure and we can maybe talk about that later I don't know but really exciting things are happening happening on Mars obviously there's talk about going back to the moon again there's a new space telescope going up later this year and you know the big entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and also I suppose Richard Branson are all taking people up into space and in themselves I think going up into space to get a taste of what that's actually like so we're in a very interesting time where there's a lot of 
energy and there's a lot of excitement and there's a lot of drama and a sense of, I think, real adventure that we haven't really had for a very, very long time. And I think you have to go back to the 60s to recapture that sense of adventure and excitement. So in a way, at a time when we are taking later steps, you know, we've beginning to move out into the solar system beyond anything we've done before, it's an incredibly apposite time to go back six decades to the moment where essentially it all began, when the very first step was taken by the very first human being into what I've called the beyond, which is why I called the title of my book. Just briefly remind us of the context in which all of this story takes place. Why are the USA and the USSR engaged in this race to space? We're in the middle of the Cold War. I mean, the epicentre of the Cold War. You have the fantastic character of Khrushchev as the Soviet premier, who is a sort of a big, burly, kind of brash, you know, noisy larger than life, kind of goldfingery kind of character in the Kremlin. And you have President Kennedy in the White House. He's only just got to the White House. He gets there in January 1961. We think of Kennedy as his great president. At the time, Kennedy was an untested and very young in his early 40s president. So you've got this young, untested president in the United States, essentially representing, for want of a better word, the free world. And on the other side, you've got Khrushchev representing a world that is essentially dominated by the Soviets. And that doesn't just include the USSR, that's obviously Eastern Europe as well. And these two superpowers, nuclear armed, obviously superpowers, are battling it out for essentially the hearts and minds of the rest of the world. It is a time of great danger It is a time when, as we know, it happened literally a year later, when nuclear war very, very nearly happened between the two superpowers. We are talking about a time which is just a few weeks before the Berlin Wall goes up, where Fidel Castro is in Cuba and represents a real threat to the United States at that time, where the Vietnam War is about to start. So you're talking about a very, very sensitive time indeed. And right in the middle of this, there is this race between the United States and the Soviet Union to put the first human being in space. And what that means for the world and what that means for both superpowers is literally everything. We're thinking of a time now, when we look back, we think, well, you know, the Soviet Union, the Cold War ended essentially with the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. What was the threat? The threat at the time in 61 is huge. It dominated Kennedy's inauguration speech. It's absolutely the issue of the day. And there is a genuine fear in the democratic West led by the United States and by Kennedy, that the world could go Soviet. It could go communist. Remember, China is also communist at this time. And so whoever actually wins this race, this technological battle to do the almost incredible thing, I mean, really an extraordinary thing of putting a human being in space, outside the biosphere, outside the atmosphere, to do that for the first human being, whichever of those two superpowers wins that race, represents potentially the future of the world. It is the place to which, or the country, or the system, or the ideology to which, those other nations that are not yet committed will be drawn. That is the fear 
if whichever nation is successful. So this is actually what's happening. You're talking about a battle for the soul of the world. It is not just, oh, it's an interesting sort of race that takes place and who gets there first. This is not only a massive technological battle. I mean, to do this extraordinary thing, and no one really knows what's going to happen to a human being in space. Nobody knows really if their eyes are going to pop out, their heart will actually continue to beat, if they'll go insane in space. I mean, these are things that people do not know. This is the most hostile environment ever known. And no one's been there before. We've got to keep remembering that. No human being has been up there before. So not only is it an extraordinarily dangerous thing to do and a hell of a challenge, but it's also a challenge that politically could change the whole destiny and shape of the planet. So everything is at stake. And that's really what my book is about. It's about a a countdown of the last four or five months, which leads to this incredible moment, this very dramatic moment when the first human leaves the biosphere and turns to his porthole and looks out of that window and for the first time sees our planet below him. And, And if you think about it, that is an extraordinary thing because that is the first organic thing from this earth in three and a half billion years of existence actually to leave the cave to leave the surface to leave the atmosphere to leave the biosphere and to look down and see our planet for all its beauty and its majesty and also its fragility as well you've talked about the the race in you know in real time taking place in the context of the cold war and of course realistically you know none of this would be happening without you know the technology and in a lot of cases the personnel that developed via the second world war and this feels particularly apposite for Yuri Gagarin because he literally grows up under Nazi occupation tell us something about Gagarin's childhood first of all well I mean it's a it's extraordinary the story of Gagarin's childhood I mean my book by the way is not a biography of Gagarin it is very much a story of this sort of countdown of these last four months of this race between the powers but what What obviously is the case, given it was Yuri Gagarin, who finally, in the last two or three days, actually, is selected to be that man in the Soviet Union to go into space. He becomes obviously a very dominant character in the story. And his past is, as you say, it is fascinating. He lived, he grew up in a tiny village about 80 kilometers to the west of Moscow in a little village called Krushino, which I've been to. And it's tiny, really. It's just a little collective farm at the time. He comes from a peasant stock. His father is a carpenter and he grows up in this town. And as he reaches the age of, I think he's seven at the time, the Soviet Union is invaded by Nazi Germany. And it's invaded across the biggest invasion front in history. I mean, it's absolutely, it's the biggest invasion in history. And it happens in June 1941. And the Soviets are absolutely thrown onto the back foot and they retreat. And the, and the German tanks advance across the Soviet border and they, they're heading eastwards. And in their incredibly fast advance, Across the Western Soviet Union, they swallow up Gagarin's village of Klishino. They arrive one day, and within 24 hours, they have destroyed many of the houses in that village. They have burned the churches down. There was actually old churches there, although they weren't being used as churches. Um, They burned down one of the council buildings there, the communist council building. And more critically for Gagarin and his family, they're 
three siblings he has, they're turfed out of their house. This is a house that his father, a carpenter, if you remember, actually built essentially with his own hands out of birch. And I've seen it. And they're turfed out. And his father builds a dugout in the garden to live in. He's allowed to do this by the German occupying forces. And an SS group moves into his house. So Gagarin is now seven years old. And there's an SS group in his house, and he's living in a dugout, which still exists. You can go and see it. It's a most extraordinary space. I mean, it's really claustrophobic. And the entire family is in this dugout, living there for the next three years. And one of the most seminal experiences, apart from obviously going into space, in Yuri Gagarin's life is when his little brother, the youngest of all four siblings called Boris, is hanged from an apple tree in the back garden by an SS officer, almost on a whim. And the officer then just walks away. He hangs him by a scarf from this branch of a tree and Gagarin sees it happen. And he rushes to his brother, Boris. He's two years older than Boris. He's seven, Boris is five, to try and cut Boris down. He can't do it. And races then back to this dugout, screams for his mother. His mother comes running out And she races to Boris, who's now unconscious, and she manages to undo this knot and somehow she manages to cut the boy down from the branch. And Boris actually survives, although for months and months afterwards, he doesn't speak. He's so traumatised by the experience. But what is interesting is that there's testimony from Gagarin's older siblings who talk about how that changed this seven-year-old boy, Gagarin himself, Yuri Gagarin himself, also as you can imagine, radically. And Yuri Gagarin became not just quieter, but he became tougher. And many of those who know him or knew him well, and that included members of his own family, were convinced that what enabled him to sit on top of the biggest intercontinental ballistic missile in the world on April the 12th, 1961, with probably less than a 50% chance of surviving an attempt to launch the first human being into space, what enabled him to sit on top of that rocket in a tiny spherical capsule and go through what he went through, which is a really astonishing achievement, runs right the way back. You can actually follow the trails all the way back to that moment when he, at seven years old, witnessed this terrible thing happening to his brother. So there was this toughness that developed in him, almost a coldness, despite the fact that he was also very smiley and very warm in many ways and a very accessible personality. There was an inner strength, an inner reliance that enabled him to go through what eventually he did go through. So there are parallel programs to get the first man into space, one in the USA, one in the USSR. Let's yeah. talk about what some of the the obvious contrasts were between the two programs. Well, the Americans had a program called the Mercury Program, and that was their manned, as they called it at the time, space project. This is the attempt to put the first human into space. And these were seven men who were all kind of top test pilots, all had famously what Tom Wolfe called the right stuff. They were all sort of in their 30s, and they were presented in a famous press conference at NASA's Washington, D.C. headquarters in April 1959 to the world. And the press corps actually almost as one stood up and cheered them. 
I mean, these were America's heroes. These were America's gladiators. You have to sort of think of it in those terms. This is the home team, if you're American, okay? And they became instant celebrities. I mean, the, the nation fell in love with them. They were kind of handsome. They were incredible flyers. They, were, they had tremendous grit. They were about to do this incredible thing, which was to fly into space or we'll start training for it which was, you know, very much in the ether. Space was the thing at the time. It was, it was everywhere. It was in sci-fi. It was in comic books. It was on television. I mean, it was, a, it was in the ether. That's what it was all about. It was the zeitgeist, if you like. And here were these guys who were willing to basically put their hides on the line, risk their lives. And they had a very good chance of not surviving uh, in order to, in a sense, not just to make America, great, if I can use that expression, but also actually to do this incredible thing for humanity, which is to put the first human in space. So that's the American team. And everything is sort of out in the open, essentially. I mean, America, very open society. So, you know, the press are there. It's a big deal. They're also pretty rich because they managed to sign an exclusive deal with Life magazine, which was a sort of a very successful picture magazine that came out every week at the time that millions and millions of Americans would read. And there was a sort of a a contract they had where essentially an airbrushed version of themselves would actually using their own bylines, but in fact, written by reporters, they would talk about their lives and their clothes and their interests and their hobbies and their wives and their homes and their kids and all those sorts of things, their favorite cars. They became super celebrities. On the other side, you've got the Soviet team, the Soviet gladiators. These are a set of guys that are picked from about three and a half thousand potential candidates. They're not even told what they're being picked for until really when they are finally picked after an absolutely brutal series of tests, medical and other sorts of psychological tests, weaning out the ones that were no good, effectively, to do this from the ones they thought would be the right, the Russian right stuff. And they were only told, at the, essentially after they'd been picked, that this was actually going to be all about flying new forms of spacecraft with humans inside. And it was extraordinary how secret this all was. It was developed as a direct reaction to the Mercury program. So these guys come aboard about a year after the Americans are selected and they come aboard in such secrecy. There is no equivalent to Life magazine. There's no press conference. They're not even allowed to tell their own families what they're doing. I mean, their wives are not even told what they're doing and or what they're training for. And indeed, in Gagarin's case, his parents only found out that he was flying in space a year later when they heard it on the radio. I mean, it's incredible. There was just no, it was totally secret. So the whole program was developed as a response to what the Americans were doing. And it was developed fast. It was developed in secret. And it was developed with a different attitude to risk. I mean, it could be developed with a different attitude to risk precisely because there was so there was no publicity. So if a rocket blew up, you just didn't tell anybody about it. That's, that's how it worked. Whereas if an American rocket blew up with an American astronaut inside, it would blow up in front of 80 million television viewers on live TV. And that was a very fundamental difference between the two. And it gave the Soviets an advantage. So what you've got is a secret team, not of seven, but of 20 cosmonauts. They had big ambitions to conquer the cosmos, as it was called. But it was finally whittled down even then to six front runners. 
who were called the Vanguard Six by those inside, those in the know, as it were. And so you've got the open American Mercury 7, famous, well-known, whatever, top test pilot team. And then you've got this, this smaller group of six cosmonauts, the Vanguard Six, who are totally training in secret. They're also younger than the American team. They're not test pilots. They weren't looking for test pilots on the Soviet side. They were looking for people who could fly in an automated capsule and essentially endure this mission. So what they chose were serving fighter pilots, people who knew about ejection, which they're going to need to do from their capsule because of the technology at the time. They would have to eject from it before it actually landed on Earth again. And they were looking for people who were essentially used to and could deal with risk. And they were looking for people who were good at obeying orders. So you've got a younger team and you've also got a smaller team. It's incredible that Gagarin was about five foot four inches in sort of old money. And and all of them were very small. And the reason why they were small was because essentially what was happening was that the thermonuclear weapon that would normally sit on top of a missile called the R-7, which, as I said earlier, was the biggest intercontinental missile in the world at the time. It could fly a quarter of the way across the world and essentially destroy most of New York. It had the force of about 200 Hiroshima bombs. What they were doing was they were removing, effectively, they were removing that thermonuclear weapon and what housed it and replacing it with a sphere inside of which would sit, or rather sort of lie, a human being. And so that human being had to be quite small. And so Yuri Gagarin was basically replacing a nuclear weapon. He was five foot four inches, almost all of them were. So you've got smaller, younger, obedient fighter pilots training in total secrecy against older 30-something, well-known test pilots and very, very, very famous in the Mercury 7. And these are the two sets of gladiators, one who know about the other and the other, the Americans who do not know about the Soviets because it's so secret and they're pitted against each other in the attempt to put the first human being in space. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Stephen Walker and we're talking about his new book, Beyond, the astonishing story of the first human to leave our planet and journey into space. That human being, Yuri Gagarin, who we were talking about in the, in the first half. And Yuri mm. Gagarin, of course, essentially, eventually is the, you know, the one of the of the Vanguard Six who is chosen. And and you spoke in the in the first half about his his background and perhaps some of the personal qualities that led him to be the one that was chosen. Now in the book you go through the day of the launch and the launch and the trip itself in smaller and smaller detail. And I want to talk some now about that actual day and that launch. First of all, the first thing I want to say is where they are, because you mentioned at the back end of the first half that all of this was going on in secrecy, obviously to the outside world, but to the Soviet Union as well. And where they are launching from is one of the reasons why they were in a... Because people might be wondering, how do you keep a rocket launch secret? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were launching from a place that we now know as Baikonur. Uh, it's a place where there are still launches being made to the International Space Station aboard a rocket called the Soyuz. And some of those launches take place actually from the very same pad that Yuri Gagarin went from. In fact, I saw one at the end of 2019. It was a sunset launch. It was absolutely incredible to watch. It was very thrilling, very dramatic, actually. It sort of lit up the whole sky and the thunder. of It was an extraordinary noise as well. Very exciting, very, very dramatic. It's in the middle of kind of nowhere, if I can sort of say that without giving offence to anybody. I mean, it's actually in the Kazakhstan steppe. It's a kind of semi-arid desert in the sort of kind of western portion of Kazakhstan. It is incredibly difficult to actually get to. When I went there in 2019 from London, it took about 28 hours and three different flights and a five-hour bus journey actually to get there. And it's still pretty, not exactly secret, but it's a very closed place, very difficult to get access to go to. It's actually a little piece of Russia that still sits, as it were, it's kind of leased to the Russians inside the independent now, Republic of Kazakhstan. So what you've got is a remote remote place that's the key and at the time when it was built or constructed i think starting in 1955 it was it was even more remote and we're talking about a place that was essentially the size of kentucky uh, in fact i mean it's 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 about a hundred times bigger than cape canaveral in the united states i mean that gives you some idea of what we're dealing with here it's absolutely enormous. There were probably, in fact, there were definitely Kazakh nomads there who'd lived there for centuries and just sort of moved with their tents and their cattle across, their camels across the steppe. All of them were moved out. This place was emptied of other human beings. 
And the reason it was built there was precisely in order to test that missile I was talking about earlier on, the R-7, the one that was used as an intercontinental ballistic missile, the one that had the thermonuclear weapon on the top of it, but also became, in an amended form, the rocket that Yuri Gagarin would go into space in, in 1961. So this top secret, they called it a cosmodrome, it starts as a missile base, is built in this vast empty land sort of in the middle of nowhere and one of the reasons they put it there is because it has very very clear skies about 350 days out of 365 days are clear but the climate is horrible in the summer it gets to 50 degrees and in the winter it gets to minus 40 degrees and winds kind of howl off the step as well I mean it's a really nasty climate and there's some really nasty animals there as well snakes and locusts and I mean just horrible things and people associated this place with a kind of a Soviet black death I mean it was really not a nice place but somehow or other in the middle of this very kind of distorted strange landscape grew up this complex of launch pads and buildings that was more cutting edge than anything that existed anywhere in the world in the late 1950s. This top secret cutting edge missile complex where they started to build these fuel dumps and they built these launch pads one after the other and they built these assembly buildings and they built roads and they built communications and they built a whole town that they called Leninsky that was was home to all of these people engineers and scientists and you know and, and obviously soldiers who were there to make this place happen effectively and it was completely secret except that the Americans, obviously, were desperate to find out more and more about, you know, how did, where, they must have known at the time what was, something was happening. So they then, in the late 1950s, started sending high altitude reconnaissance airplanes called U-2s over the area in which to, where they almost accidentally managed to take a photograph of a very key part of this cosmodrome, which was this absolutely enormous flame pit, like a huge crater that had been sort of dug deep into the earth, which was to contain all the flames from a massive rocket when it actually launched into space or launched as a missile. And they take the first photographs then. And then subsequently, the Americans had a, amazingly enough, a satellite called Corona, which was the most secret satellite that the Americans had in 1960s, quite advanced for its time. And that also managed to take photographs from space of this incredible missile complex. So the CIA insiders, those that were privileged to have access to this unbelievably top secret material, did know that this cosmodrome and this missile complex in what we now call Baikonur existed. But publicly, that was never released to the American people, not at that time at least. And of course, the Soviets, ordinary Soviet citizens knew nothing. When what the Soviet space leadership would do is release no details or false coordinates, if necessary, of this place. And the reason indeed that it has this name Baikonur is because, in fact, originally the Soviet authorities released a name of a village approximately 350 kilometers north of the real cosmodrome, which was called Baikonur, in the hope that it would put the Americans and other Western intelligence agencies off the scent 
So in fact, Baikonur was not what we now call Baikonur, which is actually that missile complex and that now Cosmodrome where they're launching the Soyuz missiles. It was actually offered to the world as a completely different place, hundreds of kilometers away to put everybody else off the set. I mean, that's the level of secrecy you're talking about. And no one working there was allowed to communicate where they were to any of their own families or anybody at all. If they actually went home on leave back to Russia or wherever it was in the Soviet Union, they had to report any conversations they had with anybody about what they were doing to the KGB. And the KGB were everywhere. And they really were absolutely everywhere. So it was that secret. Indeed, it was so secret that unlike the Mercury 7 astronauts who regularly went down to Cape Canaveral, uh, which is, of course, the American launch site on the coast of Florida and still is, where they went down to do lots of training and to watch rocket launches, often very unsuccessful ones where they actually blew up above their heads. But actually, they went down there quite often. The Soviet cosmonauts, as they were called, only got to see Baikonur, this rocket cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, approximately three or four weeks before Yuri Gagarin, one of those guys, actually flew in space. I mean, it's incredible. They almost kept it secret from the cosmonauts themselves. They themselves didn't know very much about it. Just essentially weeks before one of them was due to actually sit on top of this massive rocket and someone was going to light the candle and bang, they were off into space or into oblivion. Somebody eventually does light the candle and off they go and you know obviously it's no secret that Yuri Gagarin was the first man in space and he came back he survived the trip and the Russians won the race to get the first man into space but oh my god nearly making it sound so boring (laughs) I was gonna say (laughs) that's the full drama of my book I mean I think it's an incredible journey it's absolutely filled with risk I mean I was gonna say by no means does it go (laughs) as planned And the other other thing to say is, uh, which I think that people don't necessarily realise, is this is just over the course of a couple of hours. It doesn't doesn't go to space for a week. It's a, you know, a short flight. He travels around the planet in 106 minutes. In other words, he's travelling at a speed which is 10 times that of a rifle bullet. And he's travelling at 18,000 miles an hour. To put that into perspective, it would take about 12 minutes to fly from New York to London. I mean, no one had flown like that before in anything. Nothing. And what he's sitting in is, as I was saying earlier on, he's sitting in a sphere. He's sitting in a kind of oversized cannonball, effectively. And he's sitting on top of a what would normally be a nuclear missile. Somebody, as I said, calculated the chances of his surviving that is less than 50%. In other words, there was more chance of him dying in some horrific way than there was of him surviving. And lots of things went wrong. I mean, I don't really want to talk about those in too much detail because nobody will actually read my book and I want them to read the book because actually the drama in this is that there's so much was right on the edge. This was technology that was very cutting edge, but also, as I was saying, this is where the Soviets were taking massive risks because they knew that they had a window of maybe three or four weeks to get ahead of the Americans. You've got to realize that the Americans have been training for two years. The Soviet cosmonauts have been training for a year. The reality is that the Americans were publicizing the fact they were very, very close to putting their first human in space. They'd had a bit of a setback in one of their animal flights with a chimpanzee in January 1961, which is in my book. And it, something which was presented as going right actually went really rather wrong. And it put them, it made them stumble for a moment. And in that stumbling, which was completely publicized, the Soviets, who were reading and watching everything the Americans were doing, realized 
that there was a gap. There was a very small window. In fact, there was one man who was essentially running a, a very powerful and extraordinary personality who essentially runs the Soviet space program. Everything in the Soviet space program. He's sort of Elon Musk plus Jeff Bezos plus Werner von Braun. I mean, he's everything at once. This he's an extraordinary. This is Korolev. He's an amazing a character, probably the central character in the book. And this is somebody who recognizes he's got days now, really, if they're going to get ahead. And remember what I was saying at the beginning about how crucial this was. This was absolutely at the epicenter of the destiny of the planet. And that's not overstating the case. So you've got this guy whose dream was about going into space, who was all about the idea of visiting the planets and, and, and allowing humankind to actually push beyond the envelope of the Earth and into this incredible unknown world of space. He, this he sees as his opportunity. It is so tight. It is so full of risk in order to get there first. That at one point, they're even talking about not developing a spacesuit because there isn't time. So we're going to put these guys in this without even a spacesuit. They had very primitive radio systems, much more primitive than the Americans did. For most of his flight, Yuri Gagarin was not talking to anybody. Can you imagine traveling in a cannonball at 18,000 miles an hour around the planet, seeing a sunset, and then 30 minutes later, seeing a sunrise, traveling essentially from Alaska, right the way down to just north of the South Pole in 34 minutes, and you over the night of the Pacific, and you aren't talking to anybody, you're alone. It's not like we're used to with Apollo and obviously subsequent missions where there's all this communication taking place. There is no communication because the communications were rubbish. They didn't have time to develop them properly, unlike the Americans. So you've got that to deal with. You've got a very uncertain engine. And more than that, in the rocket, you've also got a very uncertain, what they call retro rocket or braking engine, which is essential in order to actually get Yuri Gagarin home. The man who designed the retro rocket was terrified it was going to go wrong and that he'd end up in a concentration camp or a labor camp for the rest of his life because this is the Soviet Union. And in fact, he said, if this thing goes wrong, I will blow my brains out. And it's just got one chance to go right. There's one engine, one switch. If it doesn't work, Gagarin is marooned in space and he will die slowly there because what will happen is he will just keep orbiting the Earth until his oxygen and his food runs out, and he's only got enough food and oxygen for about two weeks. So he's going to live for two weeks in a sphere, looking down on the world, and eventually he's going to run out of air and he will die that way, and out of communication with the ground for most of it. So the chances of this thing happening and working are not high. And Yuri Gagarin knows most of that, not all of it, but most of it, there is also the real possibility that he might have to take over manual control of this spacecraft and get himself home if something else goes wrong. And the trouble is, is that the entire training regime had been geared to the idea that this was an automated flight. Essentially, it would work with something not much more primitive, and I describe this in the book, than an, a kitchen egg timer that would basically activate various systems on board the spacecraft that would enable the spacecraft eventually to get home. But the egg timer isn't working properly. And there is also the real possibility that Gagarin, if it really doesn't work properly, is going to have to take over. But he's had almost no training, unlike the Mercury astronauts who've been training on simulators for two years, how to affect a manual 
return to Earth. It's an incredibly dangerous and difficult thing to do. You get it wrong, you're going to burn up in the atmosphere, and that's pretty horrific. Or you're going to get it wrong the other way, coming too shallow, you're going to bounce back into space and you're never going to come home again. It's got to be precise. These guys, Gagarin and the other cosmonauts, they're given two days before the flight, two days, as opposed to two years, in which to actually work out how to do it. And the only reason they get that is because Korolev, this guy I was telling you about, this architect of the space system, panics in the last two days. I mean, he's got, he's ill, he's got heart problems. He's terrified that Gagarin is going to die. And he panics, he panics because he feels that he might be killing these people. He might kill Yuri Gagarin. And so he gets them at the very 11th hour, the 59th minute of the 11th hour, to learn how to bring a spacecraft home again. So... There's Gagarin training in the laboratory at this cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, which he's only seen once before, three or four weeks previously. And he's training to work out how to do this in case things go wrong. And things could so easily have gone wrong. There was a real discussion that took place only a week before the flight. I mean, this is incredible. A discussion took place at the highest level involving a very high level KGB guy. And I know about all this stuff because I've got access to diaries and sort of fly on the wall stuff of people who are actually in these incredible meetings that take place, where there is a serious discussion about putting a bomb on board Gagarin's spacecraft, which is triggered to explode if anything does go wrong, in case he ends up going into, by mistake, or maybe deliberately, by defecting, he ends up going to a capitalist country like the United States of America. And this was the way they would destroy any evidence of their technology. So they really had this serious discussion, and it was only overruled at the last minute, and the bomb did not go on board Gagarin's spacecraft. When he landed, he was hundreds of kilometres off course, and there's an almost comical fact that when he gets, he lands in a ploughed field, and the only person there, because he's so far, of course, you, there's none of this kind of NASA stuff of aircraft carriers and helicopters and live TV and colour and all this stuff, none of that at all. There is a ploughed field and an old lady and a granddaughter picking potatoes, and they're the only people there. And Yuri Gagarin turns up in this field, and they run away, they're terrified of this guy you know no idea who he is and he comes rushing up to them and there is this fantastically comedic moment where he says you just can't make this stuff up where he says he needs to have a phone to to, just go talk to somebody where can can he get to the nearest telephone and the only telephone that they know of once they have their suspicions have been allayed and he convinces them who he is and he's soviet and he's just come from space which is an incredible idea to them that they actually say well the only phone is in a nearby village in the collective farm a couple of miles away and he says well how do i get there he says well they, they said well you can borrow our horse and cart so you've got a guy that has been around the world at eighteen thousand miles an hour 10 times faster than a rifle bullet has literally ringed the globe has seen you know literally 35 minutes earlier he was flying over africa and an hour before that he was flying over the eastern provinces of the ussr and now He needs a phone, and that means a horse and a cart. And there's an old lady and her granddaughter. I mean, I have all this testimony in the book. It is kind of surreal, actually. And this is just scratching the surface. I was totally drawn by this. I mean, I I, I just thought this is the most thrilling and compelling adventure. It is the first human being in space where literally everything can possibly go wrong, and lots of it actually does. And he, he kind of gets there 
without any reason or right to have got there and to have got back. And yet by doing so, he changes everything because he becomes almost overnight from being completely secret and unknown to anybody outside a very select circle. He becomes the most famous man on the planet. I mean, people may these days not really know much about Yuri Gagarin. I don't think I did, particularly when I started researching this. But he became, he would go back into the newspapers at the time, across the world, whether it's American, British, European, wherever, everywhere, he becomes the most famous man on the planet because no one has done what he has just done. And it literally changes the course of everything. It puts the Soviets up there as top dogs. And yet it's so easily could have gone the other way. So what you have is a very nail-biting race. And the Soviets kind of thread their way through a minefield of mistakes and dangers in order to come out the other end, which really had no right to do, except that they just had essentially the balls to go further and were able to go further than the Americans because they were so secretive that they could hide their mistakes if they had mistakes, many of which they did. So that's the kind of drama of it, you know, and to me, that is, I mean, I think that's a very compelling story. And it was exciting to sort of essentially take the reader and put them in that space, put them in that capsule, put them in that moment when you look down and you see this impossible beauty of the earth, you know, and how thin that atmosphere is. And you see the sunset come on you so fast, like light bulb going out. And you see the dawn arriving and threading across the, and the, the light of the sun as it drifts across this sort of blackness of the sky. And you see the stars unfiltered as no human eye or any eye from our planet had ever seen before. Because, of course, they're not filtered by the atmosphere. These are incredible moments in humanity's history. This is an epic pivotal moment and it was achieved at enormous risk and yet it was achieved and as a result of that it changed everything i mean it changed everything in the fundamental sense that without gagarin going to space first i believe it is very unlikely that neil armstrong would have set foot on the moon in 1969 i don't think that would have happened there would have been no reason to have actually made that expense and run that race because the Americans would have already run a race and won it. There's so much more of this amazing story Mm. in Stephen's book, Beyond the Astonishing Story of the First Human to Leave Our Planet and Journey into Space, which is out in the UK from William Collins. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Not at all. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.